call as well. Um, Ariel and Sydney, are you there? Hi, Dad. <laughs> well, I, this book really grabbed me, What Girls Need. Girls, uh, tell them what you each are doing now. Okay. So um, when I was younger, my dad helped me write children's books um, to help me find my dream as an author. And then later, I am 27 and I am working in the film industry. So that's what I'm currently doing at the moment. And you had started the Cookie Dalmatian Mysteries um, book business that you had for quite a while and were featured in newspapers all over the country, starting that when you were in fifth grade. Yes. Yes. And people still ask me about that all the time, so I'm so proud of you. Ariel? Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Ariel Kramer, and I have my own boutique marketing and PR firm. I work primarily with tech companies and obviously following Dad's footsteps and doing a lot of moderating these days. Not, not so much in Corona times, uh, but yeah, we've fallen in the same line of work, so thanks, Dad. I'm very proud that Ariel was named one of the 25 most influential women in 3D printing a couple of years ago, and this year made the top 150 marketers in the country. So I have to say that I followed a lot of what Marissa wrote in this book, and the results have been great, and so I'm so proud of the girls. So Marissa, let's uh, talk to you now. Great. Thank you. Wonderful to be here, Mark. Yeah. Great to have you. So uh, Marissa, let's talk, start talking about your background first. You have an incredibly interesting background. You were a fighter pilot. Uh, I thank you for your service with the Navy. You're now the head, uh, head master. Is that what they call it now? Head of school. Head so of school. Gen yeah, gender neutral, right but head of school. Yeah. Head of school uh, at the uh, prestigious Baldwin School, it's, which has been around since what, 1888? 1880, exactly right, yep. Super. So tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to write this book. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I've had the good fortune of having what I call a choose my own adventure of a career since uh, leaving the Philadelphia area. I think we have a lot of folks <clears throat> who are here today from the general area. So I grew up here um, and then went off and, you know, pursued my dreams. I had the good fortune of flying off uh, of aircraft carriers to the U.S. Navy, flew jets, um, and served overseas during that time and then transitioned and served as a counterterrorism advisor in the federal government at the Defense Department at the Pentagon and at the Treasury Department before leaving to do my own research overseas, um, traveling, doing solo research in Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, um, Southeast Asia, looking into uh, why and how individuals join terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda, um, and then what governments and communities can do to what's called de-radicalized terrorists. Uh, and before you know it, I ended up back at the White House um, under the last administration where I handled cybersecurity um, and entrepreneurship ventures. So for the folks on the, on the call today who are uh, always following Mark as entrepreneurs, that's what I worked on for the White House, before getting called back to uh, the area uh, and joining the Baldwin School as the most recent head of school, the eighth head. Uh, and it was just a chance to come back to a community that had given me a lot and commit to a mission that I'm fundamentally um, devoted to. And this is how we raise our, the next generation of young women to be the leaders we need for uh, our local and national community. So it's been uh, a fun adventure, but really the most fun is being back in the area 
And then seeing how the lessons I learned, whether it was flying jets off of aircraft carriers or serving in mostly male-dominated environments, even at that time in the West Wing or elsewhere overseas, um, particularly the Middle East, um, what lessons I learned in those environments and what the research says we can and should do now to make sure our youngest girls from elementary school, from middle school on up, learn the skills that they need to be the most effective leaders when they not just are in college, but out in the real world too. So that's why you wrote this book. Yeah, I mean, I was inspired by the girls, um, the girls that I see each day, and, and also the conversations we were having about how they applied the lessons that they're getting in and out of class to the real world, right? I think kids these days are much more precocious than anyone, any one of us was when we were their age, right? They see the wider world, both because social media puts it front and center, um, and because they're much more connected to a lot of the, the things that they're hearing and seeing every day on the front page of not the printed newspaper, but the online newspaper and the like. Um, and they really want to imagine, well, what can they do about it um, now, but particularly when they get older. And we started having conversations about what it's like, right? How do they navigate the hurdles that still are, you know, out there for women in the real world? Um, any woman who's listening and joining today knows that even today, while we've come far over the past five decades since, um, you know, since elements uh, were changed in Title IX and elsewhere, there's still a lot of daily um, challenges that women face, particularly in male-dominated industries like tech and Silicon Valley and finance and other places that our girls really want to enter, including entrepreneurship. And, you know, I think there's just core skills that we can uh, teach our girls early on to really help close that gap later on and help make it easier for them, no matter what they challenge they face when they're older. So let's start with the questions. You mentioned sure. the book about uh, continued disparity in pay in partnership track, and then these problems are projected to go into the next century, which is incredible. With each generation, I think men seem to be more forward thinking, but maybe I only know men like myself. What's going on here? Yeah, well, I mean, you look at the statistics and it's still true that there is a significant gender pay gap. Um, right now, even in 2020, women make uh, 81 cents to the dollar for a man for the same job. And yes, there was years, particularly a decade ago, when you saw that gender pay gap close over time at a steady rate. But in the past five years, it's sort of plateaued, and we see that the gap is continuing. And um, despite efforts legislatively and systematically at corporations and big companies to address it, we're still seeing that women are having a hard time closing that last final stretch of the gap. And even in countries overseas, some like Denmark and Scandinavian countries, where they've had really um, top to bottom efforts to address pay gaps and, and gender gaps in, in the workforce. Um, there's still moments where we seem to not fully, you know, close that final mile. Um, what's happening? You know, a lot of it can be social norms um, in terms of um, where women start out out of the pay scale, um, including women's tendency to negotiate and how negotiations by women are received. Uh, one interesting element of research is that by and large women negotiate much less often than men and are much less effective at negotiating than men. Now, some of it is gender norms about how negotiations are received when women ask for more. Some of it is about having women practice asking for more early on. So one of the things in my book is how do we help girls from a young age practice asking? How do we help young women or even adult women get better at asking for what they need? You know, one interesting idea is that women tend to be more effective when they're asking for another person, right? When our, our girls know that they're asking about 
the example from my school was when they were petitioning to change the straws in our dining hall for environmental reasons, no longer the past plastic straws, their initiative to make sure we go green. Um, but they felt more comfortable when they framed it as something we were doing for the whole community and for the environment in our area. Right, that made them personally more comfortable with an aggressive ask, with coming to the head of school and asking for what they wanted. Ends up being more effective, not least because I was a willing recipient to the ask, but because they were more effective in the process of asking. So I think these are some of the things that we see play out still to this day in the gender pay gap. Um, and unfortunately, from the get go, it sets women at, at a disadvantage. Over the course of many years, when you benchmark your pay against your last job, you see over time that salary gaps grow and grow. And over the lifetime, we're talking hundreds of thousands potentially left on the table for a woman who starts off at a different place than her male peer. So something they, we definitely have to talk about with our girls. Are they still like 50 years behind the times thinking that the man is the sole breadwinner and the lady's still staying home when now sometimes the men are staying home and the women are out there working, but most now are dual income households and very few people could afford to have someone just stay home. So are, are they living in the past here? Is that why these uh, paid disparities? No, I, I don't think it's necessarily a reflection of um, misrepresenting women's role in the workforce. I think um, that uh, has come more and more uh, to the norm. I think there is a tendency, particularly in the corporate world, to set pay scales based on your prior pay, right? And so this is where women who start off at a different level because they weren't negotiating. Even a recent study that was done for those graduating from MBAs showed that there was a significant disparity in women negotiating. When you negotiate, you oftentimes, maybe you don't get all of what you ask for, but you do get a pay bump. Um, and so you saw that even coming out of an MBA program, women were getting about eight to $10,000 less than their male peers out of the same MBA program. Not because they, to your point, were being misread in the coming in the door, but because they weren't asking for that extra bump, the extra pay raise out the gate. Um, and so I think there's a little bit of um, systems that need to be changed. I think there's a little bit of things that we can help our, our men and women do better. I think some of it also comes down to how um, people perceive uh, the needs of their, their, you know, the bias of, you know, who you're looking for to hire at different pay scales um, and making sure that we're looking for people who are different than our own, than ourselves. Still to this day that, you know, at the C-suite level, mostly male dominated, and we need to make sure the men at the top are looking to bring women alongside them to give them the, the leverage they need to be the leaders of the future. So I think it's so, a little bit of all those things. There was an interesting thing in your book about this subject, and we'll go on to other subjects as well. But could you please talk about the response the current CEO of Microsoft gave when asked if women should ask for a raise? Did you think that uh, that was cultural because he was from India, or, do, or does he need to be schooled in helping women executives succeed? Yeah, and so this is a comment made by Satya Nadelli a few years ago at a major conference for um, computer scientists and engineers. Thousands in the room, um, it was for uh, women computer scientists. And so he was being interviewed by um, a female college president and asked about this idea of the gender pay gap in Silicon Valley. And when asked, he said, at least initially, that women should you know, work within the system and presume that the system is gonna look out for them and that they will get the, the, their deserved pay raise when it's their turn. 
um, something along those lines, I'm paraphrasing. Um, needless to say, um, both online, on Twitter, and in the moment, he was fundamentally, uh, there was a lot of pushback for that statement. And he later retracted it and corrected himself. It's interesting, as, particularly as a father of girls. Um, and he said, yeah, you know, I was wrong, right? He admitted that part of what he, the statement was a reflection of, you know, a bit of a social norm of what we expect um, women to communicate, like how we expect them to act, um, how we expect them to relate to one another. It's one of the reasons why, and there's, this is the double-edged sword, that negotiations by women aren't as effective in part because those who receive the negotiations are more likely to say that a woman is unlikable for asking for what she needs that that's a woman who seems aggressive, not competent. Um, and so this is a social norm that I think we just really need to talk about to understand, you know, what may be our bias that when a woman makes a salary demand, we think, wow, that's being aggressive instead of saying, wow, that's being an effective negotiator and exactly what we would expect a man to do. So I think it's more about that social norm that still is across America than anything else. But um, I will give uh, Satya Nadelli credit for uh, correcting um, and then, you know, later saying that, you no, know, he agrees that women should negotiate and that um, he, like um, leaders, male leaders in and out of the computer science and engineering industry, have to make room for that um, in, their, uh, in their companies. Well, uh, let's talk about leadership uh, a little bit here. A lot of times I hear that um, women rather work with men than other women, and that some women get characterized as being uh, carrying themselves like men, and, and, and they get, you know, they're called bitches and all kinds of other nasty words. Um, even if a man does the same thing, then it's looked on favorably. Is that changing? And how should women carry themselves in? in a leadership role? And how yeah, do you teach I, girls to carry themselves in a, in a way that they'll be respected? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this is um, uh, historic, like the old wives tales that we need to dispense with, right? This idea, and excuse me, apparently the, the puppy at home here agrees with the statement, but <laughs> the, um, uh, the, the joy of uh, working from home during coronavirus. We get to uh, hear in the background our puppies and our babies. At least one of them is asleep right now. So, um, the uh, I think what you're you're sensing is um, a little bit of a historical misconception about how um, women and men can relate with one another um, and gender biases that play out. The reality is, women's statistics show are actually better at what's called collaborative problem solving, problem solving in teams working in groups, finding consensus. Uh, a recent study by the OECD showed that teenage girls, 15-year-olds around the world, 125,000 of them participated in this study in countries around the world, and showed that women outperform, or teenage girls outperform young boys when it comes to um, working in groups, working in teams, and solving problems. They were, they were on average going to score 30 points um, higher than boys in this critical 21st century skill. Right. And so this is actually what's happening. Um, and these are, you know, with teenage girls, um, not this idea that they're not working well together, that there's a mean girls element. Right. The reality is that because of how girls often are nurtured to communicate, 
how they're likely to empathize from an early age, how they think about problems through the lens of community and the other perspective taking. It's really a personal um, strength of our girls. It's something that we should talk about and nurture in them rather than reinforcing which, you know, elements I don't see, particularly at a school where we're all girls, right, at Baldwin. Um, and I, I see the girls get along and thrive with each other, right? It's this environment where they actually push themselves to be their best and to help their friends be their best, right? It's this idea that they realize that is the way these days, especially to solve problems and, um, and get ahead for each other. And so I think there's a little bit of a time to turn the corner right now and understanding this narrative around how men and women work together a little bit differently. Uh, why do you think there's so much available information about women and how they are treated and virtually none about men and the institutions? Well, I think, um, are you saying about uh, the institutions of how they, they treat and react to, to women's systemic perspective? Uh, I think that's what the, uh, what the listener is asking. So if she could type a little bit more. Oh, I didn't see. Oh, sure. I'm, I'm trying. I now see the. I'll ask you the oh, questions got it. Thank as you, I read, Elizabeth. as I see them. Yep. Got it. I see it now. Thank you, Elizabeth, for asking. Um, uh, well, I think that's, uh, you know, there's a lot of information. The, is, in, uh, the, um, the listener, the participant was asking about um, institutional norms related to men and women. You know, I think a lot of this is related to um, where systemically there's been bias, right? But by and large, a lot of the institutions that we're talking about, whether they're corporations, industries, um, you know, legal institutions, finance, um, Silicon Valley, entrepreneurship, big and small, there's a historical norm to tend towards, uh, you know, preferential treatment to men, even in how, you know, basic things are thought of and taught. It's really interesting when you think about there's interesting data out there that actually shows how men are treated in these places. Um, and so, you know, one, one data point to consider is that, uh, you know, even the algorithm for temperatures that are set um, in office buildings um, have been set historically to give preferential treatment or to understand a man's body temperature, the average body temperature of a man. It's why women, um, by and large, are cold when they enter office buildings, why so many of us have sweaters under our desk and put them on when the air conditioning goes on because the temperature is set with a man in mind. So there is research out there, Elizabeth, about how um, sort of norms have been created with oftentimes men in mind. Even if you look at the safety industry, um, safety seatbelts and safety equipment has been largely constructed with men. We can think of the first female, uh, the first space, uh, excuse me, the first spacewalk where two women were supposed to head out into space last spring. And if we all remember that they had that problem when there was not spacesuits enough to be for both women at the same time. And suddenly they had to cancel that spacewalk with two women. Um, and so these are the moments when I think it plays out and we see it publicly, even though you're right to say that a lot of the public dis discourse is by and large about the gender bias against women, because I think that's where uh, there's still a lot more um, gains that have to be made and a lot more dis debates about what to do next to help women systemically and individually. Uh, when a brave, smart, resilient uh, girl goes into the world, they encounter treatment from men and institutions that disable them, even the ones that have lovely handbooks uh, that do not follow uh, them behind closed doors. How do we expect girls to stay uh, brave and resilient? Well, I think um, resilience, excuse me. Um, uh, I think um, 
I think resilience and, and bravery is something that is uh, you can personally nurture. Um, and it is, in fact, um, to help our girls uh, navigate those challenging moments that you describe. Um, I, you know, the, the, the times when we need our bravery and resilience most, our courage is um, most um, when um, we are, quote unquote, knocked down. Even those daily moments, the daily struggles, I think that is actually when we really can call on and we want to help our girls figure out how to call on their resilience. You know, the, the moment that strikes me and, and comes out of my mind, the story is, um, is one of the one young um, women at my school was sexually harassed um, at, a, um, an, uh, at a neighboring institution. Um, and her and her friends were catcalled and, you know, and one of those moments that we hope none of our teenage girls face, but happens quite often. Um, and in fact, when I talked to her about it later, she said, yeah, no, that wasn't the first time it happened. Um, but because she had been taught how to be courageous in raising her voice, because she had been taught how to you know, speak up and speak out and ask for what she need, needed, she knew exactly what to do next. Right? And so with just a little bit of coaching, she actually reported it um, very professionally to the, the head, the president of that institution. Within 24 hours, she was asked for an in-person meeting with the director of security and went by herself um, as a teenage girl and sat down with um, the, the men who ran this institution and said, no, this is what happened and this is um, how I think you should respond. And in fact, had a very candid conversation when she talked to them about what sexual harassment training they had and, and what she as a young woman thought they might do to improve how young women in this institution were treated. It was one of those moments when you saw the bravery and resilience and courage that Elizabeth, you referenced, really come out and help a young woman stand up for herself in a moment where from a systems perspective, she had been let down. Well, what should they have done if there was no institution to go to? I mean, do they just keep walking or do they say something? What, what should have been the yeah. response if they didn't have that? Well, of course, I mean, as always, we want safety to be paramount. So in this instance, especially the, the girls did remove themselves from the situation immediately. Um, it, it involved actually running to the car and making sure they could get away and, and feel at least physically safe. Um, and then emotionally, what you do about it, right? Emotionally, particularly for a young woman and finding a trusted adult, um, parents, coaches, teachers, um, the person that they can turn to to say, well, how do I navigate this? You know, oftentimes there is an institution um, that you can turn to, right? And so this was a, they were outside at an at a institution. And so they wrote the head of the institution directly, literally email and said, this is what happened. This is where it happened. Um, and, you know, hope, fortunately in this moment, they got an immediate response to say, wow, thank you for letting us know. And we're gonna look at security video footage to make sure we do something about it. And then that opened a ne next conversation. So it's very case dependent, Mark. I do submit that like, it's not gonna work out that way every time. Um, but we do want our girls to know that, um, you know, obviously first protect themselves. And then, you know, if they can, and when they do feel empowered, you know, to take a moment and take a stand. There, there's a question here on entrepreneurship, and I'm gonna circle back to that because sure. I, I wanna talk about uh, women finding their voice. And, and you wrote about an experience as fellows being with President Obama, where people talked about your area of expertise, but you didn't say anything. Why didn't you and what did, uh, what did that have to do with being a woman? Because you're smart, super accomplished, uh, and wouldn't be there if you didn't project confidence. So talk about yeah. that. Yeah, no, I think this is one of the moments, I think some of the things that we, um, some of the best ways that we can 
teach the next generation of young women um, to be their best selves is by sharing moments where we ourselves struggled. Um, and that's one of those stories I shared in the book is a moment when I, the cliche is a cat got my tongue. And fundamentally, that's what happened. And here I was, it was the one of the pivotal moments I would have thought in my career, that moment when you're literally sitting at the table with the leader of the free world. And it was uh, during the, the end of the Obama administration, I was there with a small group talking about national security and foreign policy. And it was this time that despite me being there, despite, as you're saying, me earning the seat at the table, um, literally at the table, just a couple seats away, um, the whole time I found myself much more quiet than I wished I was in retrospect, right? Sort of allowing, pausing that extra beat and allowing men to speak up around me um, and answer the questions or ask the questions of the president or, or say their opinion. Um, and, you know, I, I can't speak to exactly what happened in the moment. I think it was, um, some of it is a gender norm that I do see play out in other, in other circles where, I mean, I'm at a lot of conference tables where I'm the only woman in the room. Even now, as a head of a, a education, a, a school, you know, we think that because 77% of teachers are women, we expect that most uh, leaders of education institutions, leaders of schools to be women, and yet two thirds of school superintendents and heads of school are men. So most of the rooms I'm in are still male dominated. And there's times when you just, you know, when you're either pausing too long or finding yourself holding back. And I have to sometimes remind myself to say, no, like, you know, I'm, I'm the leader I know I should be and I should be speaking up. And sometimes it's that inner monologue. Um, and I think it's okay to be honest that we have those moments because then our girls realize, okay, well, if they have that moment, what do they do about it? You know, fortunately for me, I was able to co correct myself and had a few more chances with um, the president of the United States to say my piece one on one and give him the advice I wanted to give on ISIS and Al Qaeda. Um, but I, you know, it was this time that in retrospect, I thought, wow, I wish I'd not um, sort of defaulted to what is often the gender norm in a room where there's a gender imbalance um, and where that's sort of how either there's room uh, easier uh, men allow men to speak more or interrupt um, less often when men speak. Another interesting data point is to consider that at the Supreme Court, literally the highest judicial um, uh, room in the country, um, female Supreme Court justices get interrupted much more often, statistically speaking, um, six times more often than male Supreme Court justices. Right, literally, they are being interrupted by, in fact, lawyers and counsel who, by the Supreme Court rules, shouldn't be interrupting Supreme Court justices. Um, and here, even at that point in their career, those women had to find new ways to make sure they were inserting themselves and asserting them, their voice in the room. So, you know, Mark, I, I think there's a lot of personal things that go into this, but there's a lot of gender norms at play, too. So um, how can fathers help their daughters find their voice? Because I, I thought about that all the time, having two girls and making sure that they didn't take a backseat to anybody, that, that they realized uh, sky was unlimited, that their opportunities were unlimited, and that there's no reason that even when they got married, they should be uh, just behind the husband supporting his uh, future and his ambition, that they should have their own ambition and and as I see, my girls are, are, are doing just that. So how do fathers do that? I mean, there's like no, yeah. there's no book that tells us what to do here. Well, the book that you're holding right there gives you some <laughs> ideas and daily advice. So fathers should go out and buy what girls need. That would be a good first step. 
Um, but I think this is about little things we can do each day, right? This isn't about changing your whole parenting style. And it is about making sure you sort of have this idea to start. But with that, I do think there are little things we can do each and every day, small ways that we can help reinforce the basic skills that will help our girls feel most empowered, right? And it's not because we're going to give up to say, to your point of some of your viewers, um, that uh, it's not uh, just about the girls, right? There is institutional change that needs to happen alongside it, right? That is an incredibly part of what we're talking about. Systemic changes to help make more room, make pipelines that allow um, more women to pursue the careers in STEM, entrepreneurship, and elsewhere that we want them to have. Um, but I'm also a realist. Um, and so I know that even though when by the time I joined the Navy, they had just recently changed the rules and allow women to fly in combat. Um, and so yes, the system had changed. But there were still daily moments that sort of made my job a little more difficult, right? The daily moment when I realized the equipment hadn't been built for me as a woman. And so it didn't really fit so well. And I had to figure out a way around that and just get on. And now that was my personal approach to it. But I do think finding moments and little ways, one thing dads can do as you're finding ways to sort of talk the talk as you just did, help them walk the walk, right? Find the ways to help them practice, gain the muscle memory that's so important um, to really help our girls speak up, speak out, and own their voice. A really interesting example that um, I'm gonna, again, borrow from one of my students um, comes from when they're really young, helping them um, speak for you when you're out in public or when you're ordering pizza on the phone, or when you're next at a museum or hotel and where we next get out of our, uh, you know, the coronavirus pandemic and are sort of out and about again. One of the young girls in my school can remember when she was in 10 years old and it, her dad made her order the pizza when they would have family pizza night. Not her brother, not her mother, but her. And she said it was always a little bit awkward, right? She didn't like it. She was a bit of an introvert, wasn't the most comfortable thing. Um, but she did it because her dad said, no, no, you have to order for the family. And then later she remembers when she got into middle school and she would have a, you know, if she had a problem on a test or needed help in a class, her dad would say, okay, well, let's, let me say, you know, let's coach you. Her dad didn't intercede. Her mom didn't call the school, but instead said, let's practice you speaking up and speaking out. And then at the end of the school day would ask how it went, not to say step in, but just to coach on the sidelines. This is the voice that this is the way that we she was helped to practice the muscle memory so that when she was a teenager and when then out in college, she just naturally knew that this is what she had to do um, to, to you know, find her way in the world. So I do think there are small things that dads and moms can do um, to help reinforce that muscle memory that helps um, our young girls really um, not, you know, lean into their, their personal way of being bold and audacious. I, I think I, my girls, uh, especially my older one used to say, uh, when she would ask me a question, I would give her, I would help her figure, help her think through the problem and figure it out herself. And she would say, Stop being a consultant. Uh, tell me what you think the answer is. And I said, well, it won't do me any good for me to tell you the answer. It'd be better for you to go and think through the problem yourself and arrive at an answer that you're comfortable with. Is that a good way to go about that? Um, yeah, I mean, because I think it, it, that's a good example of how you really reinforce um, uh, what a girl per feels personally best, how it feels personal, um, 
well, it'll be most effective when she herself is comfortable with it, right? But it does take time. So another great example is for the young introvert who's still learning the, the voice of speaking out, you know, in person or in a room with adults. You know, there's a great tool right now, at, right now online called change.org. Um, and so one of the, the, you know, the favorite stories I've heard is about one of my students who um, wanted a hedgehog, which interestingly enough is illegal in Pennsylvania. Um, uh, so you can't have a hedgehog in, in, uh, as a pet if you're here in, in the Philadelphia area. Um, and so her family and her dad and her mom um, helped encourage her to start a change.org um, online petition and email all the adults they knew, friends of family, colleagues of her father. And before you know it, the petition was sent to the state legislator. And literally she got emails back and notes back from the state legislative office saying, this is what we've done. This is how, you know, we've been advocating for hedgehogs in Pennsylvania. It turns out that the new bill was not passed. Hedgehogs are still illegal. <laughs> but here you have this moment where her yeah. voice was reinforced and she wasn't having to, you know, for her, it felt more personally comfortable to do it in that way. And that's totally okay too, right? And again, you know, we do want to make sure the system continues to change, but that we help our girls find the personal voice that will help them navigate whatever whatever stage that system is at when they you know get out of school and are out in the real world. You, you talk about that you're involved with entrepreneurship and according to TechCrunch female founders have brought in just 2.2 percent of the U.S. venture capital this past year and, and uh, despite efforts to level the playing field for entrepreneurs U.S. female startups have uh, only raised 2.2 uh, percent of the venture capital globally as well and it's a question of, is it a question of scalable models or businesses that don't understand um, what women are trying to do? You know, is it, is it a question of they're like women-focused businesses and the vast majority of investors are men and they don't get it? Or is it a question of scalability? Why is it only 2.2% or are they starting businesses don't really need it? Yeah, I actually am gonna, gonna suggest a different answer entirely. Um, Re and, it, and it actually speaks to a broader problem that we're seeing in not just um, the venture capital world, but in corporate sectors and the business sectors in general. This idea of you know, how individuals find mentors and even more so sponsors. Research shows that um, individuals mentor and then sponsor people, not just mentor them and give them advice, but actually find opportunities for them and give them a leg up in the world, um, that there's a bias at play. We are more likely to spot mentor or sponsor someone who looks like us, has a similar background like us, sounds like us, has experiences like us. This plays out definitively in, the, in gendered ways. Men are more likely to mentor or sponsor another man. It also plays out in terms of racial dynamics, religious dynamics, um, even socioeconomic dynamics, right? You're more likely to invest in someone who there's a personal connection to, who you feel an affinity for because you're of a similar background. Now, put that and overlay that into this world of investment. Right, where you're not only investing your time and advice as a mentor, or maybe as a sponsor with job opportunities, but you're actually inv investing political, rather financial capital too. Right, so one of the, the biases we see playing out in this, in the venture VC world, where again, you know, this is the stuff I worked on at the White House, right? This is how we get more entrepreneurs who are um, women, persons of color, minorities, who are not getting the investments that white men still are by and large. Um, and part of it is this, uh, you know, a bias that we don't even recognize is happening um, to say that if we're going to be choosing between two uh, entrepreneurial ventures or two heads of VCs and one looks like you and one doesn't, um, you're more likely to choose the one who looks like you. 
It's why in other institutions or other sectors, they've tried to overcome that by anonymizing the selection process. It's why orchestras now um, do blind selection processes, right? That they, um, they screen for their musicians behind pulled curtains where you're not even supposed to be able to see the shoes or hear the person walk on stage because you don't want to have a, a bias as to are they a man or are they a woman, are they in heels or not? Um, and they've seen that actual selection of um, female uh, soloists has gone up because you're really just looking at the core skill, not you know, an unconscious bias about what you think of the person based on their gender or background. I think there's a lot of that at play. Even this idea that you brought up early on, this historical thought that well, perhaps the woman doesn't need it as much because they're, a, you know, they're not a breadwinner, right? Well, that's obviously not true anymore for so many of us and for the vast majority of women who um, studies are showing are going back even when they have uh, young babies at home, just like the one who's asleep next door for me. Um, but that, that goes through many people's minds when they're choosing between two options. Um, and I, so I do think that in part by um, figuring out different ways to anonymize the selection process, very hard in the VC world when so much of it is a personal affinity to what is a risky adventure usually. And that's you know, something that I think um, at least we were working on through um, when I was at the White House by trying to have companies institute what's called the Rooney Rule, right? It's for anyone who's watching who's familiar with football, you'll know that they started that um, when they were hiring head coaches, right? To try to get more minority head coaches, they institute a rule where at least one of the finalists had to be a person of color, right? These are sorts of the systemic ways that um, I know that when I was uh, at the White House and still today, we're trying to get systems to change to make sure that there are women as finalists, persons of colors as finalists, so that we overcome the bias I was just describing. So what particular uh, curriculum programs like entrepreneurship empower girls the most? Um, well, I think this really uh, depends on the girl, right? And this is where I, I would say that um, it's about parents leaning into where the passions of their daughter lies, right? And so it may look different for um, a girl who's super sporty or super outdoorsy or super um, interested in, in writing and art. I do think there, that one um, really important um, quality to nurture in our skill, uh, rather nurturing our girls regardless, is this healthy competitive spirit. Right, this idea that our girls have to be competitive and enjoy that process, even if it's uncomfortable, because sometimes competitions are. Um, this idea that they want to opt into a competition, that they're okay being judged against their peers, that they're okay winning or losing, and they do both uh, at equally effectively. Right, those are things that we can actually nurture in our girls and will help them be better entrepreneurs in the future. That whole process we just talked about, about getting you know, funding is inherently a super competitive one, right? And we need our girls to want to and actively opt into that. And you know, as anything else, whether it's politics or the, the next uh, apartment or the next job they want requires that you know, a healthy competitive spirit too. So things we can do for that, right? Sports, a great way um, for all girls, um, regardless of if they're you know, going to be a future Olympian, sports have been shown to really be a, a fundamentally uh, effective way to teach competitiveness in a healthy way, but also, of course, resilience and teamwork. It's why over 90% of women who are in the C-suite and men, actually, so both men and women, this plays out, um, were competitive athletes in high school and, and in college as well. That's also why at, um, at Baldwin, we actually build competitive sports into the school day. We leave the end of the school day for our middle school, and it's part of what they do. They can opt out of it to do other things, but we want it to be part of the schedule to say, no, it's, it's fun. It's how you, you know, yes, it's great for physical fitness. It's how girls um, learn to adapt to their body as they're growing up. It's uh, good for their social emotional growth. 
but it's also good to make them healthy competitors. Of course, if your girl, um, you know, sort of after too many tries opts out of sports, there's plenty of other ways that you can uh, nurture that competitive spirit. Um, the local poetry contest at the library, which I know here in the area, there's a lot of, there's art contests, there's, you know, those moments when you just know that she is interested in competing in something and it's encouraging her and finding her ways for her to do so that really helps and um, is a great um, place for that entrepreneurial uh, spirit as well. So I think that's one idea with entrepreneurship in mind. And you, you mentioned about sports. You quoted a stat that 90% of C-suite executives were competitive athletes. How much does sports factor into a woman being, or any, I guess a woman being successful in the corporate world? Like if she's an athlete over something else, uh, like you said, poetry or drama yeah. or something, how does that enter into it? Well, I, I do think this is um, a great um, example of um, something easy that parents can do for any young girl, um, whether or not she, again, is going to be an Olympic athlete. It's not about that. It's about um, the other uh, intangible skills we get out of playing sports. Um, and so I do think it really helps. I, you know, and I've seen it um, at play with the girls at my school, too. Um, one of uh, our students who is fundamentally, you know, passionate about and devoted to performing arts, right? She's the girl who takes center stage, has a beautiful singing voice, and is always doing um, performing arts, um, musicals, drama, things like that um, as her outside activity. She also is a competitive athlete, right? And she will say she's not the best uh, player on the volleyball team, nor the fastest swimmer on the, uh, on the team at all. But her parents were really committed to um, keeping, making sure she kept trying. Right, that unlike boys who often, um, you know, if you don't, uh, if you don't try, like one sport, our parents are more likely to say, "Don't no, try another, try another." I remember one parent on the sideline said, "Yeah, we had to try four sports till we finally found the sport that stuck for our son." I think there's a, gen a norm out there that parents are more likely, after one try or maybe two, to let their girls say, "Well, you know, she likes drama and musicals instead." Right, but then I see what happens when, particularly in this young woman, I can describe. Um, she she found. Um, so much of her you know, personal power and her audacity um, by learning how to both win and lose on a sports field with a team. And she was so proud of it, regardless of you know, whether or not she ever made first team or whether she would be going on to play in college. And it helped her in the performing arts world. It helped her in the classroom. It helped her just be more confident overall. So I do think sports are one of those easy and untapped ways that we can help all our girls, regardless of whether or not we would sort of normally say they're athletic, because I think all girls should really nurture that part of them. Of course, it's great for their physical, uh, physical spirit as well. What was the sport that you played? Uh, well, I had the, I played uh, field hockey, lacrosse, and actually basketball. And interestingly enough, it's basketball where I can still say in retrospect, I got the best, the most out of it. I am, you can't tell over Zoom, but I um, am rather petite. Um, but it's basketball that taught me um, so much of my boldness and audacity um, and really my ability to play well on a team and how to communicate. And so that is the sport I actually miss most and that I love seeing our girls um, on the court playing because I think it's a, a place where you really learn those intangible skills that our girls need regardless. And it's also where we see so many leaders out there from Condoleezza Rice to Christine Lagarde um, to other women that, that we know of in the corporate or other worlds. Um, and then we dig in and we realize that they're actually um, were competitive athletes in interesting places in college too. Um, if you know Christina Lagarde, Chris, uh, Kristen Lagarde, who um, uh, the... Uh, now head of the, um, was uh, head of the IMF and then head right. of uh, EU's, right? Um, yeah. And now, right, so did, 
Thank you. Right. But uh, so she was a synchronized swimmer in college for France. She was on the French national synchronized swimming team. I didn't know that. Right. Crazy. Right. But it's not a sport where you're like, oh, that, that's where you're learning your toughness. But she actually attributes so much of her um, resilience and um, ability to uh, navigate the competitive world of finance to that time. I, I just read uh, recently that they said more girls are taking boxing, MMA, those kinds of sports just for confidence builders and learning how to be more resilient because they've seen these women succeed in those sports and they're seeing it more uh, on television and so forth. So um, in the book, you mentioned not asking your daughters how was their day and what happened, but ask them uh, question, uh, ask them what questions they asked. Why ask them that and how does that help? Well, I think this is where the subtle changes we do of how we frame questions, how we frame conversations with our, our sons and our daughters, but uh, you know, I'm particularly looking at the, the daughters here, um, really um, helps reinforce what we think is important, right? So when you ask what happened in your day, you know, the kids are often as likely to say, you know, how lunch was and how recess was or just what happened, right? But the why um, or the what the question was, the what they did really gets to the essence of, you know, reinforcing this idea of to the point of uh, one of your, your viewers here that voices everything, right? So asking, well, what did you ask? Um, what did you say, right? That's reinforcing as a parent that that's as important than what they ate or, or even what they learned. When we say, oh, what did you learn in history class? You're, you might hear about the topic of the day or the subject in the book. Um, but when you say, well, what did you ask? Um, you know, what um, problem did you solve? Um, how did you work with your lab partner in science, right? That's actually reinforcing really what we want our kids to get out of and what we, we need our daughters to be thinking about each and every day. Right, because it's not so much the content that matters as much anymore as the secondary skills that we need our girls to be growing up and practicing. So they develop the muscle memory that's essential when they get out. So one of, the, um, one of our viewers here is asking, Push Out Initiative talks about the rate of black girls being reprimanded at quadruple the rates of other groups. You personally coach girls to manage issues of intersectionality of race and gender. Yes, so I think the question is a specific question. There is, again, we talk about the bias we saw earlier does play out um, in along both gender and racial lines. I missed the exact question, Mark. Could you repeat the question itself? I'm so, looking uh, forward. She writes, uh, push out initiative talks about the rate of black girls being reprimanded at quadruple the rates of other girls. You personally encourage girls to manage issues of intersectionality of race and gender. Yeah, I mean, we talk about those issues a lot. I mean, uh, we have the good fortune of Baltimore being incredibly a diverse, an incredibly diverse school with an incredibly diverse student body, both um, racially, uh, religiously, socioeconomically, um, and we really invest in that. We want that to be part of how our girls understand how to navigate um, difficult conversations, how they learn together, and how they communicate with each other. So it is about having honest conversations about what uh, what that looks like um, when there's different perspectives at play. When different backgrounds mean there's going to be different communication styles, moments of tension, and moments when things are easier or harder than not. Um, so part of it is how we engage these topics in things like advising class or class meeting. Um, it's a part of how we hire our faculty and staff. It's part of how we do things, particularly through the lens of um, race, uh, in, through the lens of our diversity, equity, and inclusion 
um, committee and program that we have at the school. Um, and I think, you know, when you do things at multiple levels, it becomes part of what you're hoping to do in and out of the day, right? Because it's not just about what you're reading in class or what the curriculum is. That's a huge part of it for us and for every school. Um, but it's really about how you're putting difficult conversations front and center. Um, one thing we do at, at our school is we host brown bag lunches for the girls where they can, we, we sort of put a difficult conversation front and center. Um, it could be anything. Usually it's something that's on the front page of the paper um, during uh, the Supreme Court uh, confirmation hearings. It was about sexual consent. Um, recently it was about um, racial injustice. Previously, it was about Confederate statues. Sometimes it was about anti-Semitism, other issues that we know are core um, that are difficult. And then we educate them on the history. And then we help with our school counselors, help them navigate the conversation in an age-appropriate way, right? This is going to be very different for teenagers than preteens. Um, and we need to help them know how to enter the conversation at different points. Um, and so that they can hopefully overcome some of what you, the viewer was saying about that bias that you see in places where the response to um, things that are said by those with who you know different color skin or different backgrounds or different um, ways of engaging uh, we are fundamentally different and, and unfair. For male leaders how do they reconcile empowering women without being patronizing and what kind of unconscious bias should male, later, male leaders be on local lookout for, for in themselves and, and that's a great question because there's uh, someone on our, on our board for the Angel Venture Fair, and she is with a, a national, international company. And she said, after the Me Too movement, she said a lot of guys didn't want to mentor women anymore. They're really afraid that they would say something wrong, something would be perceived wrong. And she said that was actually a, a detriment because they needed these guys to step up and mentor them. So answering that question along with this, what do, they, what do the men do here? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great and I thank Jonathan for asking that because I know for me personally, um, most of my career, uh, my mentors were men. I mean, it was because I was in male-dominated environments. So when I needed uh, someone to give me a stepping stone in the military or when I was doing research in Afghanistan or the places that I um, was handling counterterrorism, right? Um, there were mostly, you know, men at the senior levels who could um, mentor me and sort of help create space for me and, and my career growth. Um, and I, I think it's an incredibly important thing for male leaders to lean into. Um, and I have to say that, you know, as the, the recipient of a lot of these mentorship moments along the way, um, it never felt patronizing because it's just what the guys were getting right? and I think this is where you sort of have to think well you know if you're doing it for the young you know uh, associate if you're a lawyer or the young um, new uh, new member of the team who's a man um, like what does it look like to do for a woman and it doesn't it's not patronizing to do so be, um, it's just uh, equitable right and so these it's just about creating opportunities that um, that leverage the strengths and voice that a woman brings to the table right and this is where particularly leaning into um, and understanding your team and sort of the, the women around you what what uh, what they bring to the table um, makes for I guess again not at all patronizing but just providing opportunities that the women deserve around you um, so I think it's that when you're thinking of unconscious bias, and so I'm just looking at the question in the chat here, you know, I do think it's asking the question when you're looking at um, the list of who you're inviting to um, a networking opportunity, or the list of who's going to be second chair at an event, the list of who you're investing in, the list of who's around the table for a difficult conversation and taking a seat at the table, 
right? The answer is to look around and does everyone look like you or are you providing room and opportunity for um, people of different backgrounds, women, persons of color, um, people who have had different sort of stepping stones to get there. Um, it's proven that those voices actually make your decision better, that they make your, your bottom line stronger. Um, and so it actually, from a selfish perspective for any male leader, you would say, well, they should do it anyway. But I do think it's sometimes important to just check ourselves and realize you know, what moments and what bias are we bringing and, and how it's affecting. Um, but I would challenge this, under, this idea that it's then patronizing to when you're walking to the room, say, and you know, point to the seat and make sure that the young woman in the, in the, at the room who may not naturally take the seat is taking the seat at the table. So, I mean, that's a silly example and it's not per se just the seat itself. But one thing I do for my team is, is even, you know, when we are making decisions, I actually go around the room and make everyone speak, right? And this is a way to make sure voices are heard that maybe aren't as naturally strong or that women in the room do not feel heard. Um, it's not patronizing at all because it's just equitable, right? And it's that time when you go around and you say, Mark, John, I'm looking at the people on the, Mark, John, Bonnie, Lewis, Elizabeth, right? Like, and, and everyone gets their chance and it takes 30 seconds, but it's this moment where you're just creating space for those other voices in the room that you might not hear from otherwise. So I think it's about learning tricks like that that work for you in the, your work environment. So uh, one of the, uh, our viewers here says, I work with entrepreneurs and find that women on average are far less educated with regards to finance and equity. Are you teaching any personal finance at Baldwin's curriculum or is it something you see broadening in the future? Yeah, no, I think it's, it's definitely something that we um, have, uh, we include um, when the girls get to particularly in the later stage of high school um, as part of sort of uh, life lessons. We actually have like life skills workshops that we give before they, they join their senior year. Um, it's part of how you uh, do things during clubs um, and other moments outside of the classroom. But I think it's actually something that I would stress um, parents need to do at home, right? I think this is where so much of what we're talking about is stuff that um, we can't rely just on schools to do. Um, I think the onus is on parents to really think, well, what do we want to make sure our girls um, have and can rely on themselves, um, you know, wherever they head next, but from college on. You know, I can remember when I was uh, in graduate school and, and back at Harvard and, and mentoring um, undergraduates, and there was definitely moments when, you know, they would ask questions, and I, it struck me as, wow, like, this is a question that you shouldn't have to ask at 18 years old, right? There's a moment where there was a something missed, and I do think it's, a, it's parents stepping in and saying, like, what are those things that, um, that you want to make sure that your daughter is sent out into the world knowing and finance is one of them. And so I would stress that even as, you know, we, um, we at Baldwin have uh, the benefit of having, being able to build time into today for that, um, there's only so much that schools can do in all these areas and that parents really should um, think about easy ways to make their girl part of the conversation at home. These are things that can be done around the dinner table, particularly now when we're spending so much time together at home, right? Think about it the next time um, you're taking a trip with the family, right? Um, have your daughter set the budget for the trip. Really make the onus hers and be like, hey, what do you think? We're gonna, you know, we're hopefully no one's going to the shore this weekend because uh, you wanna be safe over Labor Day and we're trying to do our best to socially distance. But the next time we're out and about, Maybe it's your daughter who sets the, the meal plan and, the, and, and does the budgeting and then understands the financial implications of the credit and the tip and all the rest. I mean, it sounds minor because we take, we do it and we just don't even think about it. But for a young teen, I mean, that's actually something that is gonna give her pause, is gonna have a moment where she's gonna independently grow a muscle that to the answer's point, um, you know, she needs to develop on her own. Oh, they become, every, everybody becomes smarter about money the more they know about it. 
Uh, I, I want to ask you about this. Let's talk about Elizabeth Holmes, founder of uh, Theranos. Clearly very smart, convinced a lot of very smart men to invest a lot of money on an idea that sounded like a great moonshot. I really thought it was, it was very clever. That said, she trained her voice to sound almost like a man when you listen to her. And, and she dressed just like Steve Jobs. You know, it seemed like she was always in black. She wore long pants and everything. And then the, whole, uh, the wheels came off the, off the cart for her. What's your take on her? And did she harm future women CEOs? Or what, what, what was the take from all that? Yeah, I, you know, it's so interesting. I did, I remember reading um, during when the, the whole thing became a media sensation, gosh, about a year ago. Now I remember reading lots of stories about her too in terms of her personal demeanor. Um, you know, I, I think the, there's two lessons here. One is I, I don't want any... Um, any single person to define either a gender or race or religion or sort of a community, right? I think that's um, both unfair to the whole and unfair to the person, right, in, in so many ways. So I wouldn't want to um, say that uh, that story sort of uh, should overly influence how anyone thinks about women anywhere. And I don't think it does, because in some ways it's a sensationalist story that um, just like there's a, there's a lot of stories out there that um, that don't, aren't representative of the whole. But I do think it's a very interesting case study. And one thing that I think it's interesting uh, that it's illustrative to do is think of case studies for how women leaders um, uh, step into their leadership roles and how people respond to them. Similarly, a case study that we do with uh, my girls during a leadership seminar that I teach for our seniors is when we do case studies, we, we talk about, actually we do talk about that case study, we also talk about Marissa Mayer, um, who was the former CEO of Yahoo. We talk about Angela Merkel. Um, we talk about other, they get to choose the senior leader of their choice, the, a woman, and look at her visually on um, video, listen to her voice and sort of how she's, uh, she talks, presents herself, um, and see how the people respond to her. And the really interesting thing, this is what I think our girls need to understand, is that so much of how we respond to leaders is about how they're perceived, how their voice is perceived, how they dress and how that's perceived, how they stand, um, how they engage with others as a communicator. Um, and this is where it's just being conscious of yourself, right? About how you talk, how you walk, and not to say change, but to know that it does make a difference in terms of your effectiveness as a leader, because so much of leadership is about communication. And this is, I think, where our girls really can lean into their strengths. One thing I encourage parents and teachers to do is really help nurture our girls' personal strengths and make that their competitive advantage. Our girls communicate often in very unique ways, different than their male peers. A lot of it is social norms, things they're taught early on about how they relate to their friends, how they relate to classmates, how they communicate in groups. But over time, uh, empathetic communication, communication that sounds and looks different, communication that's what we've historically thought of as, and I'll put it in quotes, feminine, is actually becoming something that most employees, most teams really want. Um, it's becoming an advantage to think that way when you're leading a team or when you're leading a community. And so I think, again, we can use those examples as, as one way of looking at it, but also to say, girls, how do you communicate best? How do you think you communicate with your teammates, your classmates, your friends? How does that, how is it received? Um, how do you want to do more of the things that work and less of the things that feel uncomfortable to you or uncomfortable to them? And I think those are the lessons we take out of the Theramis case or Marissa Mayer, who herself actually, like there's all these comments online about her voice, her dress, you know, how she related, um, even her humor, 
right? And I think those are the things that, again, if we just take honest looks at female leaders and male leaders too, but I do think it's helpful for women to see other women that they can um, consider as sort of good and bad case studies. Um, it's really important and helpful for young girls in particular to think of what personally feels right and feels best for them. Here's my last question for you. Sure. Uh, what would starting an entrepreneurial venture, whether it's selling t-shirts, cookies, making websites, uh, coming up with some type of uh, app, whatever it may be, uh, would that be a good way to develop their confidence, collaborative skills, and their interpersonal skills? And do you encourage that? Do you have an entrepreneurship club at the school? Yeah, we do. I mean, I think these are the 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 fun moments when um, what feels right for a girl is something you invest in. And I do think these sort of entrepreneurship ventures are great ways of doing it. I had one of our, two of our girls actually, they teamed together to come pitch me exactly that. Um, a, uh, a baking company they wanted to launch at the school um, that was a fundraising initiative and all sorts of elements. And they actually pitched it to me and I loved it, right? But what I loved about it was that they were taking the moment to ask. And that we then spent time talking about their pitch, talking about their pitch deck, talking about what worked best and what, you know, sort of they could work on. They went back and did more research about the rules and regulations that I th thought I was a concern about the funding profile and things like that. And while, the, while their venture didn't take off, um, what ended up taking off was this reinforcement of the ask, this reinforcement of the modes of communication of their way of being um, that empowered them to think that way. Um, it, it culminated in a really funny moment where they came back to me later and said that they now use the same sort of style, the same pitch deck to ask for lots of things of their parents. So they actually pitch when they want a sleepover on a weeknight. And they pulled up a PowerPoint that they showed me that they had elements of what they were going to do on a Thursday night if they were allowed to have a sleepover, including what movie they'd watch, what cupcakes they wanted to, to bake, and you know, how they'd spend their time. And, you know, I don't even know what the parents said, right? And this isn't a moment where parents have to change their minds or say different outcomes or sort of do things differently on the outcome. But it's just this idea that we're reinforcing the elements of asking, the elements of, you know, pitching, the elements of being that entrepreneurial self. It grows the muscles in our girls that will um, make the biggest difference when they're older. So I think it's a great idea, Mark, and there's lots of ways that parents can do it for their girls. Well, I hope people are going to be buying your book, uh, what, uh, what Girls Need. I thought it was a terrific book. I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today and, and wish you and all your girls there the best of luck. And we're hoping to read about great success stories from there. Thank you. If everyone go online, get a copy of the book. And if you email me, I'll send you an inscription, um, a book plate for it as well, because in the time of COVID, that's how we do book inscriptions. But um, it's been great to be here. And I look forward to hearing from everyone after they've read the stories in the book. Have a great weekend, everybody. Take care and thank you for coming today. Take care, everyone.